Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I have a particularly bookish show for you today. Lucy Trelaw, author of the critically acclaimed historical novel Salt Creek, recently launched her second novel. Wolf Island is set in a future where rising sea levels have claimed even more of the already sinking islands off the coast of the remote Chesapeake Bay in the southern United States. Here, the last inhabitant of Wolf Island, we meet Kitty Hawk, a fierce survivor whose only company is her wolf dog, Girl, until the return of her estranged granddaughter brings with it a sea of troubles. Lucy joins me soon to talk about her new novel, Wolf Island, and the sinking world at its heart. But soon. Her career has included numerous books, co-founding McPhee Gribble, chairing the Australia Council and time as Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at Melbourne University. Now, Hilary McPhee reveals a chapter of her life that many may not know about, a journey that took her from her home in Melbourne to the heart of the Hashemite royal family to a garret in London, with many heartbreaks and revelations along the way. It's all in her new memoir, Other People's Houses, and Hilary McPhee will join me to discuss her writing life and the world it has shown her. That's all coming up very soon. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Triple R, the show is Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, her career has included numerous books, co-founding McPhee Gribble Publishers, chairing the Australia Council, time as Vice-Chancellor Fellow at Melbourne University, and now Hilary McPhee reveals a chapter of a life that many may not yet know about, a journey that took her into the home of the Hashemite royal family to a garret in London with many heartbreaks and revelations along the way. It's all in her new memoir, Other People's Houses, and Hilary McPhee herself joins me now to talk about all of this amazing adventuring. Uh, Hilary, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Bill. Uh, I was saying to you just off air then that you are, are one of the... Um, you know, most extraordinary people in terms of what you've done throughout your life. And it really occurred to me that you could pick any chapter to kind of really write something about. But this one is a particularly, because I mean, I think when I picked it up, I wasn't quite sure um, what I was going to be reading. And it really did go in a direction I didn't expect at all. So I'll let you uh, kind of really set up what this story is about. Well, if I go, if I go back to the beginning of signing a contract with Melbourne University Press. Louise Adler was my publisher and she persuaded me when I came back from living overseas for about five years altogether to write about it and I signed the contract. And then I spent the next five years trying not to write about it because it was a difficult time of my life. My marriage had fallen over, I'd had various health things and I had an amazing adventure as well. So trying to work out how to tell the story has really taken me a long time five years really 
And it gradually, because I kept journals and emails and all kinds of things from that period, I finally found a sort of form where I didn't name all the people that were in part of that story because it would would have been a book just bristling with names, people that are familiar to many people here. And a memoir is about me. It's not really about anyone else. So it's a very interior book. And it's a sad book, but it's also, I hope, a book about how you deal with something that happens to an awful lot of women. You're dumped when you're in your 60s and you have to pick yourself up and decide how you go on with it. And if you've got kids, as I had, the whole family is affected. And I worked out how I could live away from Australia for five years and bring my family over to see me and so on. So it's a story about loneliness, but it's also a story about an adventure, and it was an amazing adventure. But let's talk about the adventure itself because it's, you know, you got the com- a very strange commission yes. and one that I'm sure that most people would find incredibly unexpected. Um, I didn't believe it when it happened to me. It was a friend, not a friend, a woman who got in touch with me and said that she'd been at school with me and I didn't remember her name at all. I'd had a year at Colac High School a long, long time ago where we were both in a hockey team together and it was called the Colac Battlers. And (laughs) when I went to meet her in Mario's, there she was and I recognised her straight away and she told me she was working for Prince Hassan and his wife in in Jordan in Amman. And that I might one day, she was very respectful, I might one day hear from them about a writing project. And I thought, this is absolutely weird. And she didn't tell me anything else. And we then gossiped about our kids and our husbands and whatnot. But years later, I was got in touch with. And why they chose me, I never found out. And the project was indeed a writing project to help Prince Hassan, I suspect, deal with deep depression after eight years of not being, not becoming king, which is what he and his family expected to happen. And um, the king at the time gave the succession to his son on his deathbed, which was shattering for the crown prince. And when I first met him in Jordan, he was a very depressed, I could tell he was depressed, a grey little man and who walked in a very depressed way and I thought maybe that the family I eventually thought maybe the family wanted me to do this as a form of therapy for him but we did we had a terribly interesting time working out kinds of books we could do it, and it wasn't extraordinary like you weren't interested in writing a hagiography when Absolutely you went not. Mm. Um, and it sort of felt like you took the job because it sounded as though you know he was interested in 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 talking about really important things and, you know, that you thought that this country could be a pluralist country. Uh, You know, obviously um, Jordan at that time had had something like, I think you you give a statistic of of 60% of Palestinian, 60% of the population were Palestinian refugees, Um, you know, really at the heart of a lot of them. And the Iraq war, of course, was on. This is 2005 when I first went there. Yeah, so there's Um, so much rich material, but that's not the way uh, it ended up going in the end, sadly, uh, that you could help. We came up with a a book about the state of the Middle East in the end because Princess Arden resisted um, not only a hagiography, I was not going to ever do that, but resisted using a lot of biographical material about his mother. He had a fabulous mother because by by this stage I'd been shown all the family photos and got into... um, I'd been reading up about the family so I knew a fair bit about them. 
and there was certainly a book there about his extraordinary life um, and, of course, about the succession change, but he didn't want to talk about that and he he thought writing a, a book that included his mother, I suspect included his mother, was a bit frivolous. Um, he was a very important man and I think when I suggested eventually that we do a book about the state of the Middle East from the from his perspective while the war was going on um, and refugees were pouring into into Amman. Amman was full of camps from the Palestinian days and also camps now of Iraqis and Syrians and so on. It was a, a state time of great upheaval. Um, he jumped at that idea and we had a very interesting next two years really talking about that kind of book and I interviewed him and I had a transcriber and gradually the book came together. Yeah, it's uh, so so you did do that, but things didn't quite. And it's sort of an interesting thing because you do touch on this early on in, in the book that when you first arrived, you know, there, you were kind of didn't originally have a contract, but you sort of suspect that anything to do with, you know, working with a family of that kind of, um, I guess, status in um, is likely to involve a non-disclosure agreement Absolutely, or all yes. sorts of things. So uh, approaching writing mm. about this, mm. how, did, how did you approach writing about this? He had a daughter in London who was a barrister and I met her. She was very young and gorgeous. They were all gorgeous. And she drew up a contract subject to Sunni law, modern Sunni law in Jordan, but it was an English kind of publishing contract, so I was familiar with it. And, of course, it had a non-disclosure component, but that was for the original book. And when we started doing the second kind of book, which was a much more political book, we never got a second contract. It was partly my fault because she was never there to do it, and I kept occasionally reminding people I didn't have a an addendum to the existing contract or a new one. And, of course, I knew that the family were um, concerned about confidentiality because they were always being interviewed by journalists who would come through and they were, they were, you know, they were the subject of glossy magazines and they didn't want to be, basically, or maybe the wife and daughter did, but Prince Hassan didn't and he hadn't given interviews before about the, the loss of the succession. So I knew he was telling me things that he hadn't told anyone before and we got a terrific book out of it, which I managed to sell to a publisher in London who'd always wanted to get a book out of, out of Prince Hassan. But, um, Can we just say what the title of the book is? The title of the book. We didn't even finalise the title. Yeah. Hope Against Hope was the one I sold to the to the English publisher. Princess Anne liked Goodwill better than that. That's a much more masculine kind of title, I think. But Hope Against Hope was really what the book was about. It was uh, really talking about how the Middle East had how the Arab world had to solve its own problems, that it couldn't be solved by America, that it couldn't be solved as it always used to be by the Brits. And that um, the uh, there was a marvelous organisation called the Arab Thought Forum, which I got a little bit involved with and met people from there, who would sit around and work out policy directions for Amman. And I found that terribly interesting because I've been on the fringes of policy stuff in Australia as well. So all of that interested me. Um, do you want me to tell you how the book fell over in the end? Yes, or? look, it didn't go. It didn't go according to plan, it but it did go. send you off in a direction that I think was was vastly, you know, more enriching in many ways. So, it so was. let's talk we, about we, that. We produced a terrific book, and it, the publisher was very pleased. And right at the last, in the the last um, summer, 
I was all alone, more or less, in the in the compound because most of the foreigners it was very hot, and most of the foreigners had gone off to have their summer holidays. And I was finishing the book, finishing the footnotes, and the phones started ringing from London, where the Hashemart family were having their summer holidays, as they often did. And it was the daughter ringing me, who'd been quite helpful about the book, but. Um, she started ringing me wanting changes and I would make the ones that I could see how to make them without compromising the material. But the changes she was requiring became more and more damaging to what the book was about. And at one stage, Princess Anne had said to me when we were sitting out in the garden doing these amazing interviews, he suddenly said in his wonderful deep voice, don't let them censor me. And I didn't know who them were, of course, and I didn't say, who do you mean, who do you mean? But I realised later he meant his family because his family were very dependent on the king, the present king, for for jobs, for favours, for institutions that they would head up and so on. So I then started resisting the daughter's instructions and saying, get your father to contact me, I can't do it, it's his book, blah, blah, blah. And... She never did, and he never spoke. He didn't ever until afterwards get in touch with me and tell me um, why he was caving into them. But I I think I've worked out why. I'll never know for, for sure why. But I did guess. I then said to her, I, you, I can't bear being spoken to the way you're speaking to me. She was talking to me as if I was a, a servant. I'm instructing you to do this, she said, and I couldn't cop that for very <laughs> very long so I copied off off the book and I left it in very neat piles and I had it on a USB stick and there was nothing more to do except deal with the changes that she wanted doing and I then went away I went back to Italy where I was living and wrote them a very courteous long email explaining and ended up a, a few weeks later they tried very much to persuade me to come back but I didn't because I I would probably still be there negotiating the book and by then I didn't want to be still there I'd had wonderful adventures and I I was going to try and help them get it through the London publishers and the translation and so on but it didn't ever happen. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Hilary McPhee, uh, author, writer and founder of uh, co-founder of McPhee Gribble. Uh, she's written an amazing book, Other People's Houses, about an adventure that you may not expect um, that has taken her into the heart of the uh, Hashemite royal family, um, among many other things. Um, I could really plumb, the, plumb this story all day, <laughs> Hilary, there's so much in it. Um, you have obviously uh, used that experience with the royal family to so, sort of show some of the perils of working, um, you know, as a sort of ghostwriter, I yes, guess you would yes, call that. Yes. Um, and that many, you know, this is a really thorny area that many writers do um, end up working in mm-hmm. um, for various reasons. Uh, and it's quite a tricky one to negotiate. And you certainly really do give a very deep insight into that but you know the book then takes you in all these other directions um particularly working with asylum seekers or refugees Mm. rather um you know and then into your own sort of you know coming to terms with your the breakup of your family yeah yeah. yes uh, i wanted it to be i wanted that side of my life to be framed by the adventure really and the other, the other strong theme I think in the book is the, uh, the, are my women friends who really saved me. And Carmen Carlyle, who you may well have heard of, who's extremely famous, who started Virago years ago, and she's a good friend of mine. 
Um, she, I stayed with her in London in her attic. It wasn't a garret, it was an attic. I think I, think <laughs> I just really attic. wanted to say and, garret. Uh, yes. yes. And she was very fierce with me and she didn't like, didn't like the Hashemites at all. Carmen has a Lebanese, back, Lebanese Irish background, but she's born in Australia, but she was very ne- never sympathetic. She goes to France a lot where she doesn't approve of the burqa and so on and so forth. So we would fight about a lot of things like that. But she was a tremendous support for me. And also when I was in Italy, I was living in an apartment of a friend of hers and I didn't come back to Australia for five years. So I kind of ran away and had an adventure and then came back to deal with it. And that's what the book's about well uh, you know it is an extraordinary book in a uh, and based on a very fascinating life um hillary mcphee thank you so much for joining me today on thanks Bill, very much for a beauty interview thank you that was uh, Hilary McPhee talking about her memoir, Other People's Houses. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. Up next, Lucy Trelaw will join me to talk about her new novel, Wolf Island, set in the future in the sinking Chesapeake uh, or islands off the coast of the Chesapeake Bay. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, Lucy Trelaw, author of the critically acclaimed historical novel Salt Creek, recently launched her second novel. Wolf Island is set in a bleak future where rising sea levels have claimed even more of the already sinking islands off the coast of the remote Chesapeake Bay in the southern United States. Here, the last inhabitant of Wolf Island, we meet Kitty Hawk, a fierce survivor whose only company is her wolf dog, Girl until the return of her estranged granddaughter brings with it a sea of troubles. Lucy Trelaw joins me now to talk about her novel, Wolf Island, and the sinking world that is at its heart. Lucy, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much, Mel. It's lovely to be here. Now, I have to say, I this setting was something of a, a revelation to me because I thought, you know, and it's a terrible thing to to frame it this way, but you know we're increasing the you know output of of climate uh, disaster fiction because as we start to see what the world may look like, uh, given you know the acceleration of climate change and no one doing anything about it, I sort of felt as though this was uh, you know really sort of set in that type of future and that this these kinds of islands didn't actually <laughs> exist. But in fact, uh, a little bit of um, googling sort of revealed that in fact. This is something uh, the the islands off the coast of Chesapeake Bay are in fact already and have been um, becoming more submerged since the late 1800s. Why did you decide to set your novel in this particular area and and explore these kinds of um, places? Uh, When I started uh, looking into this this book... um and dis- I discovered that these islands had been disappearing for a long time. It was a revelation to me as well. I thought, oh, gosh, it's not exactly what I thought it was. But the idea for the book came from uh, a photograph that I saw quite by chance while procrastinating from doing something I should be doing, a photograph of an island just sitting on the sea, and the island itself is about the size of a suburban block, and there's a little bulldozer pulled up as if it's the family car, and this 
three-storey house just kind of perched. It looks like it's floating on the water. And I saw it and I was struck dumb by it and instantly thought, oh, it's my next novel. It was just like that kind of quickness of um, decision-making. And then I could imagine very quickly again this woman who became the protagonist in the book, Kitty Hawk, looking out of the third-storey window at the past at her world and this kind of disintegrating life and and that's where the book came from. She's depicted right from the start of the novel as this very fierce character. She's mm-hmm. uh, she's there on the shore sort of watching occasional sort of, you know, boats sort of floundering around um, and, you know, she's kind of set up these two sort of, I guess, sentinels, statues that have cow skulls uh, that are sort of set up there to make people take pause before they just approached her island and her only company is is this wolf dog mysterious kind of creature that actually is is like native to that island can you tell us about this kind of you know kitty hawk's backstory because you've done quite a lot of work to sort of you know create a culture that she's from um and this you know the specific specifics of this island and her own sort of family the loss of her family it's funny looking back at it because quite a bit of that development work seems like a little bit of a blur and even the fact that girl is a wolf dog which is an actual hybrid between a dog and a wolf and you know they're bred in the united states though they're not legal across the whole country, those sorts of things. I just think, oh, when did I decide that? Um, You know, I I named the island Wolf Island and quite a lot of things flowed on from that. But in in terms of the research, I I went visiting there a couple of times to this this region. I was lucky enough to get an Australia Council grant and I spent two months there, winter and summer, and went looking around, all around this region, drove thousands of miles, getting lost, kind of driving myself into that landscape so I could feel it and inhabit it in the writing in a kind of um, realistically emotional, emotionally connected sense, I guess. That's what I was aiming for. So so that was how I built uh, my connection to that world so I could write it. I want to talk more about the writing itself because your writing is has this beautiful lyricism to it um, that, you know, you really revel in the language and a lot of the sort of early discussion in the book is about language and, and how people talk and how people express themselves. Um, but I, I want you to talk about the plot of the book first because it's sort of quite a fascinating slow burn plot. Uh, yeah, it is, and and um, and it was a sort of slow burn for me too. And quite quite um, early on, I felt panicky about it because I I kept on thinking I don't really know what this book's about, and I would just be kind of writing along, making myself write my daily quota of words, and I'd think, oh, I just you know the first half of the book they're on the island. And um, in my mind, the book was going to be set entirely on the island. I had I had a sort of idea of how it would go, but it just was a little bit dead. There seemed to be an awful lot about vegetable gardening, <laughs> and it just wasn't that fascinating. And but while I was visiting there and reading all the time what was going on in U.S. politics, I began to see this kind of unfolding other narrative that developed from the from the locked in island life. Uh, and discovering that, writing along, and I've never felt so blind while I was writing, like I literally had no idea where I'd be going the next day, um, was quite frightening in a lot of ways, quite um, dislocating. I'd, I'd just be thinking, 
what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? And a, a little bit more would unfold. And I think that feels right. Okay, that feels okay. And if it didn't feel right, I just couldn't proceed. And then I'd kind of backtrack a little bit. And then I'd be able to go forward again if I tried a different tack. Mm, I think I think one of the real life kind of, um, I, and I gather that this informs some of your writing as well, the real life kind of things that that you drew upon was the fact that these particular islands were very heavily in support of Trump um, and, you know, that kind of sort of isolationist approach to things, a fear of outsiders uh, really did motivate a lot of those, you know, the thinking behind Trumpism, I guess. So you've sort of used those ideas but then, you know, given them different outcomes as well. Can can you touch on some of the plot points to kind of give people oh, a little okay. bit of a set? I don't I don't no, want no, to really I don't not with that, I don't want to be spoilery. No, no, though, don't, yeah, not spoilery mm. at all. But but maybe why you decided to kind of employ yeah. that because it is very much a a political novel in its in its way. It completely and, is. Yeah, yeah. I, I think all of the political situation that's unfolding in you know modern day America has been of consuming interest to me for the last few years. All the time I was writing this. And and I obviously wanted to write something critical of Trump, but I could also see how mentioning him directly would be a black hole that would suck an entire book into it and destroy it, really. But I did want to look at some of the consequences of Trumpism, and one of those uh, things is this rising tide of racism, of vigilantism that's happening in the States that's kind of creeping up from the southern borders of the States and of people escaping through the United States north in a, in a sort of replication of the old slave routes, the underground railways of the, after the, the abolition of slavery and all the troubles around that. So I was looking at these kind of patterns of history and wanting to explore those and seeing also how the changing climate that there is there is interacting with changing politics, changing geographies, changing worlds. There's so much kind of interconnectedness in in all of the things that are happening in the States at the moment. It's fascinating. And you can see similar things happening here. So in a way, to me, it's a metaphorical Australia. Um, but I couldn't find exactly that landscape in Australia. I spent quite a bit of time looking for one. And has anyone heard about any disintegrating islands in Australia? Cold climate, you know, that kind of thing. But I just couldn't find exactly what I was looking for. And so I settled on fidelity to this original photograph that I saw and exploring the um, possibilities of that political world. Absolutely. I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I really want to delve a bit into the actual writing itself now mm-hmm. because it is just you know it's just such beautiful writing it's you know the what you're describing is at times quite bleak but you want to stay with the writing in this book uh your you know the way you use language you know really feels as though you're sort of you know approaching it from a point of view of a melody almost tell me a little bit about your writing style because it's it's you know, really very elegant. Thank you. Uh, I, I've written two first-person novels now, which I'm very aware of. Um, but I, while I'm writing, I can hear the protagonist sort of murmuring to me the whole time. And while I was uh, writing this book, I would be murmuring, and it's allowed quite often. So I have people from downstairs saying, uh, who are you talking to? And it's just, you know, me chatting away, being kitty. 
um, kind of dictating the story to me, the author, um, writing at the computer. But um, I'm very influenced by a whole kind of lyrical line of writers. Cormac McCarthy would be one of the most important influences. It's a little bit less heavy on the page in this book than it is in Salt I was going to say, I can, I can get, I think tonally you yeah. have Cormac McCarthy in there, but I think very definitely you're, you have a lightness of touch, I think with it thank you uh, it's probably a, yeah I, I feel I, I've kind of inhabited my own voice better in this book than I did in Salt Creek maybe I'm always interested in language and I, I can't really see why people turn their back on the kind of aesthetic beauty of of language um, I've read um, what's his name Jonathan Franzen just talking about how we should be all transparent and the language should be invisible and I just think I don't really agree with that you know <laughs> More Herman Melville, that's what I say. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Lucy Trelaw about her second novel, Wolf Island, which is an extraordinary book set uh, in the uh, futuristic uh, setting of an island off the coast of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Islands off the coast of the Chesapeake Bay are in fact now sinking uh, but this futuristic world really takes it a step further and draws parallels with Trumpism etc. I do want to talk a little bit about the climate change aspect of this book Uh, and I heard an interview with you where you said I think any modern novel is going to be about climate change in some way or or words to that effect Mm -hmm. and I thought that was a really interesting or it kind of nailed uh, what is happening I guess with fiction now is that we're actually addressing our world and Mm -hmm. what we think the future will be which is really quite devastating to think that we've we've really basically accepted that that's what the future looks like. Can we talk a little bit about that, about, you know, writing climate change into novels because when we write about the future, that's what we see? Yeah, it's quite a... It, it was something that troubled me a lot, how, how to achieve a balance of kind of depicting the way we all go about our daily lives, living normally, you know, doing the shopping being in our relationships with all the people we love, while also holding intention somewhere within us, the knowledge that the world is falling apart. And yet here we are sitting here, you know, we're smiling and chatting, and this is what the world is like. And I very much wanted to show show that world where people are functioning. They're not in a state of flat despair. They're making adjustments to their world. They're moving on. Um, and and that's what we're, we're all doing. Even while we're grieving for this terrible thing that's happening, while we're unable to make politicians act on any of it and in this state of terrible despair, and yet we keep going. And so I wanted to make it so that that climate aspect didn't overwhelm every other part of the story um, so that it, it is part of that coherent world that is related to our politics, our our personal lives, our, you know, the worlds that we live in, the landscape, um, that it is a part of a coherent whole, even if it is fracturing. I, I'm really, you know, I know this is talk, it's a bit of a axiom to say that, you know, novels tell greater truths sometimes than nonfiction uh, and perhaps even free people up to say things that they wouldn't otherwise. Sure. <laughs> in nonfiction is the other thing you're like, no, it's fiction, very definitely. Uh, but, you know, I'm thinking more and more that 
quite often people will put novels in the category of something that's more flippant somehow. We should be writing big, important nonfiction books or out there doing more direct activism to change the world. But, I, you know, the more I read and the more I talk to people, the more I think the acts of empathy that, uh, that you know, fiction allows, um, reframing of the world, uh, you know, really getting us to look at things from a completely different point of view is one of the really important things, roles that fiction still very much serves and I think fiction more than more than anything else in some ways. In this book, you do try to I kind of approach some of the, the fragmentation that modern politics has created uh, and address how perhaps we could find a you know, common humanity and uh, come back to each other a, a little bit. I feel like that is definitely, you know, where you're coming from to a certain extent in this book. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I, I still think about this. What What is my position? And, and, and people say that, you know, I've read a few reviews where people say, oh, this is what I'm saying. And I, I think I, I, I never have a polemical purpose in my writing. I don't have a message. I think what I'm saying is look at how people are. That's what I'm interested in. I'm a very keen observer of humanity. And and so if I'm saying anything, it is, wow, people can be so fantastic. They can be so amazing and they can be really awful as well. And they can be a little bit in between sometimes. And, and to leave it up to the reader to see where they feel that they might fall. Um, Kitty, the protagonist, makes some decisions that shocked me a little bit while I was writing. And I would think, oh, would I do what Kitty did there? And I, you know, would kind of back away from it and think, well, that's what Kitty did. And, you know, I'll, I'll leave it up to other people to decide, is that a good way to behave or act or, or not? Yeah, so I, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be directive about what I was suggesting people think. But I do think that books have a part to play as part of a general mix of raising people's consciousness, awareness of what's happening and the ways that things might play out to speculate a little bit about those futures. And, and I think that is such an important function that literature has had mm. for a really long time. Because I think learning by having someone make didactic statements mm. at you is, is not really... You know, it's not really a way that lowers our our guard, I guess. So yeah, it doesn't exactly. Well, what you know, while reading, you know, while kind of opening up and allowing that we're seeing the world through the eyes of a protagonist that isn't us, mm. uh, we start to kind of maybe let in ideas and thoughts and and frames of reference that we wouldn't otherwise. It's just a little bit of a Trojan horse in that respect. Exactly the term that I use when I'm thinking about it as well. Uh, yeah, there's just that kind of getting around behind people's prejudices and making them see things in a in a new light and i and i think with the chesapeake bay one of the things that's so great about it is it's demonstrably happening you know those houses are falling into the sea the islands are disappearing you know there's no denying those things um and that's a kind of great demonstration of the truth of what's happening uh, there's so much more that I could really go into um, in this novel. I did I did want to touch on one final thing, and, and I think um, many interviewers have probably already discussed this with you, that, you know, you've, your first book has been a historical novel and now you're writing about the future. Um, I, I'm really interested in that kind of uh, line of questioning because I think authors, you know, have many um, abilities and many interests uh, do you feel as though there's sometimes a little bit of a, a desire to sort of fit you into a category of being a particular type of writer? Yeah, I, th I think it is. It is 
I've observed that it is harder for women to shift to cross genres when they're writing. And when I was thinking about this book, which was around the time that Salt Creek was, you know, it was a year or so after Salt Creek came out. And I said to the publishers, I'm thinking about this book, but it's it's going to be set sort of now, but a little bit in the future. And um, I'm concerned about getting locked in with the historical. And they said, you're right, do it now. Or it's going to be, if you write two, it'll be too late. Yeah. Um, and, and I just could see the truth of that. But it, it's much easier for men to swap around and not to be called historical novelists. Well, I'm very happy for the reading public that you have actually uh, stretched into other areas of, of your writing talents. Uh, it is an, a really beautifully written book and, and one that uh, we were saying, I think, off air deserves to be read slowly uh, if people can find the time uh, to really take and absorb, uh, you know, what you've produced. It's very much worthwhile. Lucy Trelaw, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Lucy Trelaw, the author of Wolf Island, which is out now through Picador. That really brings us to the end of the show today, and it's been an extraordinary one. I would like to thank both my guests, Lucy Trelaw, of course, who you've just heard from, and earlier, Hilary McPhee, uh, who came in to talk about her memoir, Other People's Houses, which is out now through Melbourne University Press. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.